Those who assert that the mathematical sciences say nothing of the beautiful or the good are in error, for these sciences say and prove a great deal about them, if they do not expressly mention them, but prove attributes which are their results or definitions. It is not true that they tell us nothing about them. The chief forms of beauty are order and symmetry and definiteness, which the mathematical sciences demonstrate in a special degree as they show us how to embrace the void. you to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 178 of Embrace the Void, where we've entered the cruelest version of the cruelest month. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got a great mix of back to basics and some hot newness. So let's get metaphysical. Physical. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My returning guest this week is Dr. Donica O'Connell, a postdoc at University of Fribourg in Switzerland, where he does work on metaphysics of the self. Donica, would you like to say hi once again to the void? Hello again, the void. <laughs> it's good to have you back on. It's been, I can't believe it's been a year. We were talking about this before. We started recording. I thought it had been like five days since we last had you on the show. And I, well, a lot I continue happened, to be very you know, deeply time, confused. Time flies when uh, <laughs> everyone's having fun, I suppose. Oh, yes. Time flies when you're having a coup. So, yeah, it's great to have you back on. I You sent along an email with a really great suggestion for an episode that I was into of sort of just broadly talking about the field of metaphysics as a section of philosophy. And we put out a tweet that got a lot of good questions about this particular topic. Uh, so I've collated those into a couple of sort of clusters of similar kinds of questions, and we will hopefully get through a bunch of those. But first, just a little bit of sort of general discussion, right? Just to get us started, I want to say, you know, okay, I'll bite. What is metaphysics? Help us understand this. Right. Okay. So that's, as you'll see, if you look at any introductory articles or introductory books, that's a very contested question. And you normally, it's standard, yeah. Um, but you normally have, but I suppose, unlike, let's say, philosophy of science or philosophy of religion, there's not a 
a recognizable mm. subject area that everyone is familiar with before they become acquainted with the philosophy of it. And that's even true probably of epistemology or arguably of ethics. So metaphysics is a bit harder mm-hmm. to pin down even than those, than those other big topics. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a contested term. It's a, it's, um, it has very different connotations and, it, and it's had different connotations at different times. But the way that I, th- I think the standard way that, it's, that I've seen introduced or the way that I like best to think about it is that it is a general study of the fundamental nature or the fundamental structures of reality. And there's a lot in that that we can we can dig into. And and as I say, that's the conception that I'm most comfortable comfortable with. But there are certainly other rival conceptions, and we might be discussing some of those as we go. Yeah, I mean, let's just let's lay out a couple of potential conceptions of it, and then we can dive into our questions some. So what might it be other than the uh, study of the fundamental nature of reality? Right. So if you go back to and you look at the, the history of the subject, it's it's been used to mean quite different things. So the term comes out of work by Aristotle and Aristotle didn't use the term metaphysics himself. He had, he had, he had um, different terminology. But what we now call the book we now call Aristotle's Metaphysics was about I think I think he pitched it as being about first causes. And later um, metaphysicians, so if you move forward now to the um, the early modern period, they expanded it. So it was no longer just about first causes. It was a very, very general study. And as pursued by the rationalists, mm-hmm. it was tied together with a very strong rationalist and um, a priori methodology or a priori approach. So it very much became associated with the idea that you could sit in your armchair and if you thought hard enough mm-hmm. and long enough, you could work out for yourself certain basic features of reality, or maybe even all the basic features of reality. So it's very often tied with this idea of a of an a priori working out of, of reality, which is which is prior to any empirical investigation. So that's one um, mm-hmm. angle. And I can come back to that later on, but just to compare with a couple of others. So mm-hmm. what you had against that is a more uh, modest or deflationary approach which takes metaphysics to be not really the a priori study of the nature of reality, but something like the study of the structure of our thought about reality. And Mm -hmm. this could be either Mm -hmm. our thought in the sense of all human beings, or maybe even all intelligent beings, but it could be even more modest. It could be the structure of thought at a particular moment in history or thought that's associated with a particular uh, culture or a particular civilization. So that's more modest because it's not aiming to tell us anything about reality in itself, as it were, but rather how we have to think about it or how we happen to think about it. So this is a view which is very much associated with mm-hmm. um, Kant, and it's been developed in a, mm-hmm. in a number of um, different directions. For instance, the logical positivists uh, would have had, would, you can, you can mm-hmm. see them uh, as taking this Kantian suspicion of old-fashioned rationalist metaphysics and extending that into a suspicion of all metaphysics. So this would be like the linguistic turn, right? Where you get very deflationary and a lot of this is 
viewed potentially as as either bunk or simply semantic differences is that sort of where that's going that's one direction it can go in that so that that's that's quite an extreme mm-hmm. reaction there is a midway which said which basically does something quite like what kant did but instead of focusing on the structure of our thought about the world it focuses on the structure of our language and the structure of of of, of how we describe the world so for an example of this um you might look at the English philosopher Peter Strawson, who um, presents, what, mm-hmm. presents what he calls descriptive metaphysics. And the, the aim of descriptive metaphysics is not to tell us about reality, but it's to tell us about um, our fundament, the fundamental concepts, the concepts which he thinks we have to use in making sense of reality. And mm-hmm. he contrasts this with any mm-hmm. metaphysical program which tries to overhaul our ways of thinking about reality. Okay. So you lean more towards, though, that it isn't just about what's going on in our heads, but it is to some extent about what's going on out there in reality? Right, but with some, with some important qualifications. So I think actually a nice, way mm-hmm. to, a nice way to lead into this is to go back to the original answer I gave, which of course is a very, very um, general answer, but it was, it was something like the study of the most fundamental structures of reality. And there's a very natural mm-hmm. question that will occur to uh, people listening, I'm sure, um, which is, well, isn't that just science? And in particular, isn't it just... Yes, uh, I have physics? several of those questions. <laughs> right. And, and that's a very fair question, a very reasonable question. And it's, I think it, it actually helps to contrast how I see, what I see the role of metaphysics as being with um, the role of, of the sciences and in particular physics, because that, that, would, that would help to bring out some of the particular features of metaphysics as I, as I understand them. Mm-hmm. So when you're faced with this challenge, and of course, this challenge wasn't really a challenge for, for someone like Aristotle, because back then you didn't really have a very hard distinction between um, the natural sciences and what we call philosophy. But it became a challenge in the modern period. And in response to this challenge, one of the ways of responding is to, is to fall back on a more deflationary view where metaphysics is not really trying to describe reality. It's trying to describe how we think about it. So there, the idea is that you're avoiding a competition between metaphysics and physics because they're, they have different subject mm-hmm. matters. And, if, and it's understood mm-hmm. here in the background of this move that if there was such a competition, metaphysics would lose because physics is a very well-established science. It has an excellent track record. So this is, a, this is the same religious move of non-overlapping magisteria kind of thing, right? Avoid being destroyed by science by claiming that you are uh, talking about different things. Right, yeah. Um, or at least that's that's a move that's available to um, um, to, to people who who want to try to bring together and uh, have have science and religion without them being seen as as, mm-hmm. as adversaries. So that's one move. There's another move which is available, which is to say, look, physics does describe um, fundamental elements of reality, but it doesn't describe all of them. So the thought here will be that there are things mm-hmm. which do not fall within the purview of physics, or and possibly do not fall within the purview of any empirical science. Now, these things, these entities or kinds of entity, they'll differ depending on, on um, one's views. So you might, some people will put this view forward about um, God or about souls, but other people will put it forward about mathematical objects or the laws mm-hmm. of logic, or if there are logical entities, or you might put it forward about values in ethics or aesthetics. So the thought here is that, well, I would. Yeah. Um, yes. As as a as a realist in in ethics, um, the thought here is that well, both physics and metaphysics are describing, are trying to describe fundamental structures of re- structures of reality, but metaphysics can describe structures which physics cannot. 
and possibly vice versa. So that's another move you can make. And mm -hmm. sometimes when that move is put forward, there is the implicit suggestion that actually the things that metaphysics describes are more fundamental or they're more important. They're more real in mm -hmm. some sense than what's described in physics. And this is, this is also a very old idea. This goes back to probably at least as far as Plato with the idea that the, the forms are what is ultimately real and the empirical mm -hmm. world is somehow secondary or even illusion, illusory. Mm -hmm. Great. So let me ask some of these questions that folks put forward that are all, I think, connected to the sorts well, of stuff that you've uh, been getting out there. Sorry. Yeah. Well, be, be, I was just going to make, make, make a further suggestion before we, before we do that, okay. because, because I've given you two moves that can be made in response to this what you might think of as this challenge from physics. But there is another response, which I think, which I actually prefer myself. Um, okay. So, I mean, one thing you can do is you can say, you don't have to say that there are things which physics cannot um, reveal, the, um, reveal to us or cannot, is, not, is not suitable to study. But what you could say is the question of whether there are not such things is not itself a question which mm -hmm. physics is really um, the right tool to settle. And, and indeed, it's not clear that any of the empirical sciences are the right tool to settle such a question. And this suggests a more general strategy, which is to say that, look, metaphysics is trying to study the, the nature of reality. So is physics. But what differentiates them is that the questions metaphysicians ask will be different. So I'll give you just a couple of okay. brief, brief illustrations of that. Um, so one of, the, one of them is you might suppose you have a worked out theory of physics, which contains a list of the fundamental physical elements and fundamental equations, which we can refer to as, as laws. Um, and the thought then mm -hmm. is that the physical structure of the universe is built up out of these fundamental entities governed by these fundamental laws. And that's a, that's a view which I think is a, um, a lot of people thinking about physics and thinking about science more generally, they would see um, scientific study is aiming towards that kind of view. And of course, if we ever achieved mm -hmm. that, that would be, it would certainly tell us an awful lot about the, the, the nature of reality and the nature, the nature of our world. But there are questions you can ask about that, which that view does not seem itself to answer. And one of them, for instance, is if you consider those laws of nature, you can ask the question, well, could these laws of nature have been otherwise? Or indeed, is it possible that they could change, that they could, they, could, they, could, they could cease to be exactly as they are? And it's not clear that these questions um, can be addressed by physics, because if you like, these laws constrain the space of possibility within the physical universe. But what we're asking about is whether those laws themselves could be altered, whether there is, so to speak, a further, a larger space of possibilities. So if it's a law, for instance, um, um, that um, certain particles would attract or repel each other, could that have, have been different? Could the particles which, which uh, as a matter of natural law repel each other, could they actually have attracted each other had things been different? And as I say, that's not a question which right. it's obvious that physics can answer, but it's a, it seems to be mm. a question which we can pose. Now, before I go on, I, I just want to say straight away, I'm not suggesting that metaphysics can answer that question, but what we're worrying mm -hmm. about at the moment is whether there is any substantive difference between metaphysics as a study of reality and physics as a study of reality. So the fact that we can pose what seem to me to be perfectly legitimate questions, which physics does not seem on the face of it to be, to be um, apt to, to, to answer, suggests mm -hmm. that there is a, a difference in um, 
what you might call subject matter here, even though it doesn't require that there be any entities which fall outside of the, of the physical realm. But it's just that you can ask certain okay. questions of the physical realm, which, um, or, so or if, in gen, of reality in general, which we shouldn't assume that physics um, or any empirical science can answer. So if I came along as a scientist and said, I've developed a machine by which I can test whether the fundamental features of the universe could have been different, would that question then pass in your mind from metaphysics into physics? Okay, so there's really, if, 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 um, let me try and say that there's two aspects to that question. There's the specific question you've posed, but in the background, there's a very interesting point, which is that, is it true in the, in the course of intellectual development that a claim or a hypothesis can move from being empirically not testable at a certain moment to being empirically testable? And I think this, mm -hmm. the answer to the second question does appear to be true. So it's, so it's probably the case that questions that were considered the purview of metaphysics and philosophy have fallen into the purview of physics. I, I think that's, I mean, I can't give any, any examples right off the top of my head, but I wouldn't be surprised that that's the case. And I suppose more generally, if you're thinking of an empirical science, questions like the origins of life, for instance, um, at one point were Their considered taxonomies, to be... the, the differences between species, right? The essential nature of species versus their evolved nature, I feel like. Right. There, there, there are examples that we could point to it. Right. Yeah. As so well the, as probably examples of um, like scientific claims that were not empirically testable at one point, but then became empirically testable in, in a different point because of technological advances or something like that. Right. So, so um, no, I think you're, you're right in both those cases. So you have technological advances, but you also have advances in theory. So you have, you have um, mm -hmm. conceptual advances, which allow us to rethink, so to speak, um, pheno different phenomena. Um, for instance, it allows us to apply laws to certain phenomena which we would have previously thought of as being um, different in kind, let's say. Um, now, in answer to your specific question, in principle, yes, but I, the problem is it's just not clear how the machine would work. Um, so all, you, all you've done, of mm -hmm. course, is you've told me that, that, that someone's come along and claimed to have this machine. Um, but it's just not clear what it would be because the thought is that, that what we're considering varying are constants of this universe and it seems mm -hmm. to be that if they're constants of this universe they cannot be varied in this universe now maybe I'm, I'm i'm completely mistaken about that but that would be my um layman's understanding of these things so of course the, i'm not saying that there there are no um physical regularities which could not be varied because that because for instance you could hold more fundamental physical regularities uh fixed um while the less fundamental ones are varied. But what we're considering here are the most fundamental ones. They're the most, they, they are themselves among the, the bedrock elements of this, um, of our supposed completed physics. So it's just not clear to me how a machine in our universe could possibly vary something which is a constant in our universe. So that I think is a, is what a- What about being able to, yeah, just think about, what about being able to observe a different universe? Would you then argue that, that the universe we were observing would have to, in some way, have similar enough constants to be observable? Or, or do you just think that we can't observe other universes ever? I think the problem there would be with, with the notion of observing. So, and I, I, I don't want to, be, to make this sound like a conceptual point, but it's just that um, if we're going to tie observation to the notion of empirical data, as opposed to mm -hmm. simply thinking about something, then it seems that we would have to have some sort of causal relation or connection between 
the observer and the observed are failing that at least mm-hmm. some kind of route through space time from one to the other. If you right. don't have that, then I think it's very hard for us to understand how we could have an empirical sense of observation here. And then, of course, the problem is that if we're talking about literally a different universe, it's it's not at all clear how you could have a space-time route from one universe to another. That would seem mm-hmm. to suggest that what we are dealing with here are not really distinct universes, but perhaps distinct regions of a larger uh, universe. In which case, of course, the, mm-hmm. I can put the same problem again concerning this larger universe. Yeah, and we'd have to see, right, if that section of what was just a larger you know metaverse in that way could have still variations in its fundamental features that might tell us about the localization of our own um, fundamental principles right and i just to say i mean i i did say earlier that i'm i want i didn't want to assert that metaphysics can answer the question that i posed but mm-hmm, sure. metaphysicians certainly do think about this so that so um there's a kind of a standard view of 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 this what i was referring to earlier as a space of possibilities so the thought is that mm-hmm. there are many things which are currently technically possible for us uh, as in technologically possible mm-hmm. for us and there are other things that are technologically impossible and then there's a broader space of possibilities which are the things which are possible given the laws of nature in this universe and that mm-hmm. includes both the things that are technologically possible but also many things that are technologically technologically impossible and the question then that we're asking mm-hmm. is, is there a broader space of possibilities beyond that? And metaphysicians and logicians have put a lot, quite a bit of thought into this. And so um, we can at least, it seems, understand the contrast between what is possible given laws of nature and, and what, is, what, is, uh, what lies beyond that. But what might be mm-hmm. um, what's sometimes referred to as metaphysically possible or maybe logically possible. Okay. So let me ask a question that someone, somebody put forward that I think is connected to this and might help tease out the, the details here. So how would you classify something like string theory or quantum physics, broadly speaking? Do you see string theory as metaphysics? Is it science? Is it something in between? Okay. Um, so I should first of all say that my knowledge of, of both string theory and quantum mechanics is very, very sketchy. That's the first. That's the very True first. For all point. of us, that's fine. <laughs> um, well, maybe not all of us, but, um, but 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 certainly a lot of a lot of us philosophers. And the second thing to say is that I think you ought to treat those two very differently because I mean you do have different theories. Mm-hmm. I think, in, as far as I understand it, string theory, and of course you also have different accounts or interpretations of the the, the phenomena that we that we associate with quantum mechanics. But my understanding is that quantum mechanics, um, while there are lots of different interpretations. There is an empirical, there is a, a large, very well attested set of empirical phenomena there. And so what mm-hmm. we have here are competing interpretations, which my understanding is that at least many of them are all, all, are compa- equally compatible with the empirical data. Um, with string theory, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure how close a link there is between empirical data and the different competing theories. So, and indeed it's it's a criticism or a point that's been made at least about string theory, which is that it's that that it is not clear at this moment in time how it could ever be empirically tested now mm. i don't want to conclude from that that string theory is metaphysics um because of course one of the things i haven't okay. done is given you any sort of clear demarcation between um physics the questions in physics and the questions mm-hmm. in metaphysics what i said earlier was that there were certain questions about reality that it wasn't clear how physics could answer them 
and these on the face mm -hmm. of it look like look like um, what we would think of as, as standard metaphysical questions. But there could also be other questions um, that, that that metaphysics um, asks, which concern you know what are more clearly elements within reality. So, uh, for example, the relation between mind and body is a standard um, mm -hmm. kind of metaphysical question, or you know. Um, for that matter, um, questions to do with ethics. So what's the relation between the natural world and the values that we that that that, that many people think um, guide their actions or make their actions good or bad? So so th those are um, metaphysical questions. But if you like, they 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 concern different elements um, uh, within reality rather than reality as a whole. And I suppose the follow-on point there is that. It does seem possible that that even if even if it's going to be quite hard to, to produce many examples of metaphysical claims which are can be decided empirically, nonetheless, it's mm -hmm. not clear that we want to assume that all all theories which properly belong to physics must be empirically testable, and all theories which properly belong to metaphysics cannot be empirically testable. So because it might be that there is that metaphysics has both an a priori aspect so there are there is there is an element of of thinking which um and of putting forward claims which cannot be empirically tested but there may also be a, a corresponding um empirical aspect so it may be for instance that you and this is this is something that i uh, this is a, a way of thinking about metaphysics that i find quite congenial there's an a priori step where you're considering different ways in which the world could turn out to be at a very a very mm -hmm. um, high level of abstraction and you're, you're comparing and um, contrasting different theories and playing them off against each other. And you can do that without considering by and large empirical data, but then there is a question of how it best applies to empirical data. So there is a further question, for instance, of, well, um, do these theories fit together neatly with what we know about the actual world? So let me give you a, a quick example, if you don't mind. So sure. there's a very, tempting line of thought which comes up again and again in the history of, of, of metaphysics, which is to say that all that exists are tiny particles. And so the ancient Greeks call this atomism. Um, now we, we use the word mm -hmm. atom in, in a different sense. So, so the view nowadays might be something of the lines of all that exists are certain subatomic particles and perhaps their, their, their qualities mm -hmm. and relations. So the thought is that it's a, it's a very austere metaphysical view. It's, it's, it's aiming to give a complete picture of reality, or, or at any rate, a complete picture of spatio-temporal reality. And um, that view attracts a lot of people. It seems, or at, at one point, it seemed to fit very, very nicely with um, developments in, in, in physics and the sciences. It seems to fit, for instance, with a certain program on which, uh, let's say, biology can be reduced mm -hmm. to chemistry, and then chemistry can be reduced to physics, and then the rest of physics can be reduced to, to microphysics. And this is a view which, mm -hmm. is, which, which was, was, was very attractive um, a few decades ago. Now, we can ask lots. First of all, what I've just described is a metaphysical view. It's not, it's not itself a theory within physics or within any other of the, of the special sciences. The view, the view that is that the only things that exist are these microparticles. And we can put right. certain questions to this view before we start investigating the empirical data. So, um, one of them, for instance, is, well, is it really possible that the only things that could exist are these microparticles? So, for instance, does this view allow, you know, must there be space, for example, for these particles to exist in? Must there be time for these particles to exist in? 
And can we give an account of space and time using only these particles? So that's one challenge you can put. And that's a challenge, it seems to me, that you can put without having to consider um, any specific empirical data. And a, or a separate challenge might be, well, if all that exists are this vast array of microparticles, how do we account for the fact that there seem to be lots of other types of entities, you know, so tables and chairs, and for that matter, mm -hmm. you and me thinking our thoughts about this, this, this particular metaphysical theory. So there's a challenge there. The theory must give some kind of account of how it seems to be that there's so much more. Okay, so both of those, as I say, it seems to me, are not don't, don't rely very heavily or, or if at all on any empirical data. But there is another kind of challenge you can put. You can say, well, this metaphysical theory, does it really fit well with empirically confirmed theories in physics? So does it really fit well with, for example, um, the theory of relativity? And mm -hmm. it's not obvious that it, that it does, but in order to find out if it does or not, you, will, you would have to look at an empirically supported theory, namely the theory of relativity. So there's a sense in which at least some metaphysical views, can, you can at least put pressure on them by bringing in um, empirically supported findings. Even if you can't directly test the theory itself, there are indirect ways in which you can, you can um, use empirical data. So, and then to go back to the string theory, you can see how, hopefully you can see how that complicates slightly um, the picture because I don't want to rule out completely the thought that string theory um, is, 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 is really a, a highly mathematically advanced branch of metaphysics, but nor do I necessarily want to say that because, it's, because the boundaries here are not completely clear. Yeah, so a similar question would be something that someone put forward was, you know, what makes a view metaphysical rather than methodological or epistemological, right? If I believe that the mind-body problem is an empirical question or a methodological question or something um, and not metaphysical, would you say that that's, that's wrong or would you just say that that's not how you would use the terminology? How would you approach a question like that? So I would say that the mind-body problem is, is, is or at least involves all of those things. So I would disagree with the thought that it's not metaphysical, um, but it's clear, there clearly is an empirical aspect to it. So, for example, we now know far more about the relation between, for example, different kinds of mental activity and different kinds of neural activity than, than would have been known um, even a few decades ago. So, and that's the result of empirical study and of also presumably working out more carefully developed um, theories of the brain. So there's an empirical dimension to it. That's the first thing to say. There's also a methodological dimension to it because there are methodological challenges to do with, well, on the one hand, you have the body or the, or the brain and its various states, which are observable in, the, in, the stand, in pretty much something like the standard way that we, that we think of um, in the sciences, mm -hmm. but then you have um, mental states, mental processes, mental activities, and there it's not at all so clear cut. Um, and indeed, in many cases, you have to rely on first person reports. And that makes the, the mental side of the mind body problem, methodologically speaking, rather different to standard mm -hmm. um, um, scientific issues. But I would say that even leaving those to a side, there is still a residual metaphysical problem, or at any rate, it's, it's, there's a case can be made that there is a metaphysical problem here. And the reasoning here is, is would go something like this, that the challenge in the mind-body case is not simply a matter of providing 
an empirically adequate account of the co-variation between, let's say, mental states and, and states in the brain or states in the body as a whole, or even for that matter, states mm-hmm. of the body located in its, in its environment and living its life. Um, that even if we had a very, very robust um, correlation, which allowed for, a, you know, it allowed for a high degree of, of prediction into the future, there's a sense in which, or at least it seemed to many people that there is a further question and the question is, is prompted by the thought that, I mean, the simplest way to put it, I think, is that at least some mental states just seem to be different in kind than the, the neural states and more generally the biological states or the physical states with which they're being correlated. And that seems mm-hmm. different to the case of, for example, the, the kind of typical toy example is to do with um, the macro features of water, like its liquidity. So we can give an account of right. the liquidity of water in terms of the arrangement and the behavior of the molecules which make it up. And we can even go further down into the, into the uh-huh. constituents of those molecules. And the thought there is that we have, and people put this in different ways, people sometimes speak about a mechanism or there's a kind of an overall framework. And the, the thought is that there is a clear link between liquidity as a phenomenon and the structure and behavior of these molecules. That if you like, once you know enough Mm-hmm. Uh, through empirical study, once you know enough of the behavior of the molecules um, and you've built up a, a robust correlations between the behavior of the molecules and the, the water being liquid or the water being solid or the water being, 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 being a gas, in a sense, there's not any extra mystery because we understand liquidity and solidity in the same conceptual framework as the, mm-hmm. the, the structure of, of the molecules. And similarly, we can say similar things about, for example, the hardness of a diamond, as opposed to the softness of some other metal or the relative softness of some other metal. So it appears, I mean, and one way to put that is that we can analyze or we, 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 have, we have an understanding of what it is, what these properties are in terms of um, um, the propensity of things to behave in space and be, and be, and be organized and, and structured in space. So I suppose at its most general, that's the idea that we have this general framework, which encompasses both properties like liquidity and solidity on the one hand, and the arrangements of molecules, of of H2O molecules on the other hand. And in the case of the mind-body problem, many people think we don't have that. We have a a framework on the one hand for thinking about neural activity and and, um, biological and chemical changes in the body, on the other hand, we have, for example, conscious states like headaches or mm-hmm. desiring to go to the cinema or hoping that there'll be a vaccine, please, please, pretty please, or um, you know, fearing that there'll be a, a third or a fourth wave. And it's not clear. This, I think this is. I think this is. This is the the way that I would prefer to put it. It's not clear that we have a single framework which unites those two, or a, or an analysis mm-hmm. of the conscious properties and conscious states, which clearly ties them back to um, the biological or physical ones. Now, that's what I've just said there is controversial, but nonetheless, it seems to me that sure. there is there is genuine controversy about it, that in the, whereas it's not at all clear that there's genuine controversy in the case of water. So it seems to me that um, if you take that seriously, okay. that looks like an important difference. And I will be quite happy to think of that in terms of, of metaphysics. And I just to add one more thing. Okay. In describing the mind-body problem as a metaphysical problem in the way that I've done, that's not to commit me to saying that the mind is not physical. 
or that there is a um, or that there is a, um, any material sold or anything like that. I mean, I think there are arguments for that, but the point I'm making is simply that to think of it as to think of there being a special problem here, which I'm tempted to call metaphysical, doesn't commit me to thinking that physicalism must fail. Rather, what it's saying here is that there is a specific okay. kind of challenge for physicalism, which looks like, on the face of it, would look looks like it would it would remain, even though we continue to bring more and more empirical data to bear. Okay, so let me ask a question that I think is related to these. Actually, let me ask a cluster of questions here that I think are all sort of could be popping up in people's minds as they're listening to you distinguishing between physics and metaphysics in this way. So, you know, one person asked, what is the ground for metaphysical knowledge? Uh, another person asked, you know, in terms of uh, demonstrability, predictability, and repeatability, you know, will metaphysics ever outperform random chance? Uh, and another person asked, can metaphysical systems be falsifiable? So I think these are all sort of different ways at trying to get at uh, this question of, or, and one more I'll add, you know, are, are there heuristics that you guys use to avoid verbal disputes in metaphysics? Or do you feel like, how do you know that something isn't just semantics? So I think it's, it's all centered around the question of how do we know that there's anything underlying our metaphysical knowledge rather than, you know, beyond just something feels right to us in the right kind of way. Right. And so, so, so there's a lot there in those questions. I mean, and you're right that they're all, they are all related and they all center on that topic, but they, they do come at it from quite different angles. But so let me just start with the very first one about the question about what grounds uh, metaphysical knowledge. And I think there's no simple short answer. So if, if you if you recall, I mentioned that you have a you had a kind of an, a, a grand old style of metaphysics, which uh, where, where the idea was you could work out a priori important facts about the structure of reality. So classic examples of this would be um, philosophers like Spinoza and Leibniz. So you could work out a priori how the world actually is in certain key respects. That's the very, very basic idea there. And then against that, you have a much more mm -hmm. deflationary view, which says, well, we can't really do that. But what we can do is work out through careful analysis, the structure of our thought. So how it is we actually think about reality, how, how the different concepts we use uh, relate to each other, which of them are indispensable, which of them are, are irreducible. And that, of course, is a significant mm -hmm. retreat from the first one. But I do think that those aren't the only options. And an option that I quite like which I think is more like the first, but is not exactly the same as the first, is to say something like the following. Metaphysics doesn't tell us only about our concepts. So it's not just describing um, the way we think about reality. It is describing the way reality, uh, it, is, it is describing reality itself, um, but it's not strictly speaking telling us how reality is, full stop. Rather, it's best to think of metaphysical claims as being conditional in nature. So the idea here is that you have certain metaphysical frameworks, which involve positing, um, let's say, certain kinds of entities or understanding entities as, as related in various ways. And in putting forward one of these frameworks, what you ought to say, I think, is that given such and such conditions, given such and such assumptions, then this framework can do a certain job for you. Or conversely, given such mm -hmm. and such assumptions, then this framework is going to be in a lot of trouble. So the example I was discussing earlier of, of a world where the only things that exist were microparticles, 
you can think of my responses to that as being along the, the, the second line. So that, in other words, we have certain assumptions about, about reality. And given those assumptions, we can put pressure on this proposed metaphysical system. So this way of thinking of things, um, you are making claims about reality, but what you're going to conclude is not with a single overall picture in the way that, let's say, Spinoza um, concluded. Um, so Spinoza famously thinks that the that um, there is one fundamental entity, which is which is nature, which is identical with God, and the entities which we consider as 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 being distinct from that are merely specific ways in which the universe is being at certain points. So the idea is that you know, I mean, mm-hmm. if you were being very very crude about it, the idea is that the the universe is being a bit Donica Lee over here, and it's being a bit Aranish over there, and. Mm-hmm. So obviously sure. this is this is a very very counterintuitive view, but it's a very grand sweeping view, and it's and it really is a statement of how things are, or indeed Spinoza thought how they must be. Whereas the kind of picture that I'm putting forward, it's going to be very very hard to decisively choose between different metaphysical frameworks. But what you're doing is you're you're pointing out the costs and the benefits associated with each, and I think I. I don't know if, if there are many um, contemporary metaphysicians who put things in quite the way that I'm doing it, but I think if you if you read them, I think this way fits with quite a lot of how they describe things. So I'll, I'll give you an example because um, I think this is a particularly good one. It's a um, the Australian philosopher David Armstrong who, who passed away a few years ago. So he's a he was one of the key figures in the the revival of metaphysics in the in the second half of the 20th century and so he's he's written a number of books and the book i'm thinking of in particular is called universals and it's a short introductory volume and very very um clearly written so it's so it's on quite arcane topics um but he writes in a in a, in a lovely clear punchy english and what he does in that book which is really nice is he he quite clearly is involved is, is using this method of costs and benefits. He's saying, look, there are certain things we want to account for or explain. And different metaphysical mm-hmm. theories will go about it differently, but each one will, will give rise to its own problems. So if you like what you're doing in putting forward these these um, and assessing these metaphysical claims is you're trying to work out exactly what the costs are, exactly what the benefits are um, for each one. And, and now those costs and those benefits, if you like, you're assuming those. So, you, so, so that's where the idea that, that you have to appeal at some point to how things strike us as being or what, what seems to be more plausible. Although, of course, you can, at, at certain points, you might also be able to appeal to, um, to um, how, a, how a metaphysical theory best fits with our, with our established um, scientific mm-hmm. theories. But the thought there is that you have the competing theories and rather than being able to, so to speak, um, you know, decisively pick one, and sweep aside the others, what you have to do is a kind of a process of weighing them or sifting sifting between them. And when you think of, of the process of doing metaphysics in that way, then the question of what grounds metaphysical knowledge be- becomes rather different because metaphysical knowledge, if, if what I'm saying is correct, metaphysical knowledge is not likely to ever be unconditional statements about the nature of reality. It's going to ever be a more um, conditional statement that, well, if we assume X, Y, and Z, then this particular theory is the best for us. And then, of course, that will always leave open the question of, well, ought we assume X, Y, and Z? And what, what reasons do we have for assuming X, Y, and Z? So I would recommend people yeah. who are interested to have a look at that book, because I think it's, I think it's, it's very accessible. And it's 
a very good example of what I think is a productive way to, to, um, to engage in metaphysics. The, uh, you want to give the name of the book again for folks? So yeah, so it's uh, Universals, an Opinionated Introduction. Okay, great. So given that framework of metaphysics as being, you know, putting out a bunch of potential theories and explaining the costs and benefits of e any of them, what would you say about a question like, do we gain progress? Do we, do, we, do we make any sort of progress on our metaphysical understanding about the nature of the universe? Or is it just sort of, you know, can you count it as progress to simply be lining up competing alternatives endlessly with really no way to, to fully decide between them if they all have various kinds of costs and benefits? Right. No, that's that's a very fair question. Of course, that then brings us back to the contrast with the empirical sciences, where we clearly do we clearly do have progress, or we, we have we have um, mm -hmm. theoretical changes, and and most people are convinced that there is that there is genuine progress there. And very often, the way we measure progress, I mean, it, you, there's a number of different ways you can measure progress in in the in the sciences. And one way that's often sometimes used as a, as a shorthand is something like. Um, a consensus among the experts in the field that there is a certain body of knowledge mm. that's been accumulated and pretty much everyone in the field agrees with this body of knowledge so there's going to be disagreements concerning you know at the, at the bleeding edge of research and sometimes the bleeding edge of research is concerns very very fundamental questions like it, as is, as is the case in in physics um, but nonetheless there is a very well established body of findings that are, so to speak, the, the rockets common go core. Up. That, that common... to me is social pro is scientific progress. Right. No, that, I, th I think that's very. That's a very um, um, obvious. Um, it's very obvious that progress has happened there, and the short answer is that there's not anything like that in metaphysics. And now, I don't want to be. I'm going to say that there's a different kind of progress, but I, I don't want to be Weasley. So I certainly don't want to say that progress in metaphysics is anything like as impressive as in physics. It is not. Um, categorically, it is mm -hmm. not. Um, but I do think that, nonetheless, we can speak of intellectual progress in, 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 along um, different dimensions. So I'll give you an, I'll give you an example, and, and I think this is progress, although, although the person who posed the question might not. So, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about Spinoza earlier. So that this this theory of monism. So the the word monism is used in different ways in different branches of philosophy. So what I'm thinking of is the thought that there is just a single fundamental entity. And usually that, that entity is identified with the universe as a whole, or with maybe with space-time as a whole, or with, or with space and time as a whole. Um, so this view waxes and wanes throughout history. So Spinoza put it forward. And then if you jump forward to the late 19th century, it was actually a, a, um, a very well-established view. In fact, it was arguably the dominant metaphysical view. But then for almost all of the 20th century, it was it was um, considered an antique and a laughing stock, and in fact, it was barely discussed at all for most of that period, it, because it just vanished from the stage. It wasn't even considered an opponent worthy of reputation. And interestingly, monism has made a little bit. Sorry, I want to know why now. Um, okay, so there's 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 a uh, another little book I'll mention to you by um, an English philosopher called G. J. Warnock. And it's a book on, I think it's called something like English philosophy since 1900. So it's just looking at um, um, mostly philosophers living in England who are English. I mean, there's, there's, an except, there's exceptions like um, Wittgenstein. But it's looking at, at the course of philosophy in England in the first two thirds of the, of the 20th century. And he discusses the, the eclipse 
of these monistic views. And he describes it as, as something like the following, that monism was, was engaged in a war with its opponents for a long time, but, and the, but the citadel of monism was never taken by force. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't as though monism was refuted by arguments or was defeated by some, mm. some um, scientific findings. Rather, one day, the, the assailants of monism reached the castle and climbed the walls, and they found to their surprise that it was deserted, that nobody was left. So what happened really is that monism was not defeated by argument, but the people who proposed it just couldn't find new recruits. They couldn't find um, you know, students to, to continue to wave the monistic banner. And their numbers just dwindled um, um, through the passage of time. And, and this is a pattern which repeats itself in, in philosophy and also in, in science. I think it's been, I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's the, the, uh, the aphorism is that science progresses one funeral at a time. And something similar is true of, of, of philosophy. So what I'm saying is that monism was, 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 um, was considered an antique for most of the 20th century. And it's made a comeback. Now, you might say that's not progress at all. That's, that's in fact, it's the opposite of progress. But if you look at the way it's been brought back and, and um, resuscitated, so the person who's, who's mostly responsible for this is the American philosopher Jonathan Schaefer, who's written a number of papers outlining and defending his version of monism. And I would say that what he's achieved is a form of progress because he's taken this idea, which had been very attractive in the past, which clearly spoke to many people, and what he's done is he has improved it in a number of dimensions. He's made it much clearer, first of all, what the claims are um, by using um, mm -hmm. um, a certain amount of, of logic, which wasn't, which wouldn't have been available to, it, to, to its proponents in previous centuries. And he's also developed um, new arguments for us. So, for example, one of the ways he defends it is by saying it can allow us to provide an account of quantum entanglement. Now, I'm not saying that that's a good argument, but I'm simply saying that, again, that's an argument that would not have been available in previous generations. So he has, it's not simply that he's gone back to the, to the, the, the well and drawn up this old idea. He has improved it in specific dimensions and he's made it a real contender. Now, he hasn't won many recruits, so it's not as though um, <laughs> metaphysicians are converging once again on the view that, uh, that the only fundamental entity is, is um, the cosmos. But he has made it respectable in a serious position. It's a position worthy of discussion. So I would say that that's, um, that's a kind of progress. It's clearly not the kind of progress that we associate with, with um, physics. But nonetheless, it is an improvement of a, a discussion of a certain idea. And mm -hmm. maybe that's the kind of progress that we should learn to live with in metaphysics. And, and, I, and I can understand, certainly, if, if people say that's not really progress, that's just a cycle, an endless return of theories that were thought dead, but that come back from the dead, kind of zombie theories. And I can understand why they say that, but I think it's a little bit unfair because if you look at the specifics of his, of his position, it does improve, I think, in certain clear respects on its uh, predecessors. So I think that there is a progress okay. to be had um, in that. And then and something similar can be said of other branches of, um, of metaphysics. So for example, um, I was speaking earlier about, about um, different, I was talking about I had this metaphor of the spaces of possibility. And again, that kind of talk was, was considered very um, suspect for much of the 20th century. But nowadays, philosophers are very, very comfortable talking in that idiom, talking about um, possible worlds. And some of them even think that there are literally possible worlds. There are literally other uh, universes, right. although that's a, that's a very... Um, 
that's still a very minority view. But the terminology of possible world, the, the mechanics of modal logic are nowadays widely used by philosophers. And that's progress because that opens up questions and it opens up ways of thinking which would not have been available um, to philosophers in previous um, generations. Yeah, I think I would say that I see something similar happening in the worlds of like meta ethics and probably even normative ethics, where I think people would argue that you can't test these theories. And so they sort of just go round and round with each other. But I do think progress is made in terms of the quality of the arguments being presented. Um, so yeah, I think I'm sympathetic to that. Let me let me add another wrinkle to this, another problem. I realize we're running, starting to run a little short on time, but I'm curious about what you see as the role of sort of social concerns in all of this. So one question we got was, you know, is it possible to defend metaphysical hypotheses without looking beyond a single set of philosophical and linguistic assumptions? Or does metaphysics require looking at patterns of cross-cultural variation and getting a sense of why and where things are sort of up for grabs? Similar question, do we need something like social metaphysics? And I'm sympathetic to this that like, you know, one of the big concerns we saw in the early modernist period where that the rationalists were sort of looking at their very narrow perspective on reality and acting like it was sort of obviously true and fundamentally the case. And there that a lack of awareness of other ways that other societies, other groups of people approach things might give a very sort of simplistic, narrow approach to metaphysics. How do you how do you feel about those concerns? Yeah, so I, th I think there's definitely something in that. So, I mean, one of one of the so so there's been a recent development in philosophy of, of what's called experimental philosophy, where rather than simply making assumptions about um, you know what the, the the common man or woman thinks, or you know the, the man on the Clapham omnibus um, thinks about philosophical issues, um, somebody had the bright idea of actually going out and asking some of the some of the common man and common women uh, what they thought. So. And that leads naturally to the thought that um, you, you would expect to discover at least some cross-cultural variation in um, philosophical assumptions mm -hmm. and philosophical thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm, I think that, that, that we will discover, and we, we, I understand that we have discovered. Um, I'm, I'm not very well versed in, in experimental philosophy, but I understand that, I understand that there, there will be um, a certain amount of variation. And... I suppose the question is how seriously does the fact that people in different, um, let's say, cultural or social situations, how seriously does, does the fact that they differ in their metaphysical views call into question a specific metaphysical claim? And that's mm -hmm. genuinely difficult so, because I don't want to say that we have to um, try and find a happy medium, as it were, um, because I do want to leave open the possibility that, well, um, it's possible that some people are just wrong. And that, of course, that, that applies to me as much as, as much as to anyone else, or that applies sure. to people in, my, in, in the tradition that I, that I see myself as working in. But at the same time, um, I, there is a challenge there, which is that we certainly shouldn't um, take it as obvious that something which intuitively seems the case to us will intuitively be the case or seem to be the case for many other people. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think it does depend on the cases. So I think, I think there are going to be certain bedrock assumptions, you know, so you might say that it seems to me as though there are things existing in space around me. And I'm pretty okay. confident that there's not going to be too much cross-cultural variation on that one. But if it comes to something like, you know, the relation between the mind and the body, 
there may be much more um, complication there. And okay. So I think I think yeah. So I think I think there's a number of different, um, um, if you like, lines of thought there that open up in terms of not not just cross-cultural variation, but also you're then looking at um, empirical studies and how to bring them to bear in in um, in formulating mm -hmm. the kind of questions that you put to metaphysical theories. Okay, the similar related question and one that I I see a lot on the internets that I think might be useful to folks now that we've laid out a bunch of this um, metaphysics and a bit of social metaphysics. Do you have a sense of why people insist on thinking that socially constructed things mean not real? And how would you sort of recommend that folks approach conversations when they feel like a person is uh, conflating those two ideas? Yeah, so there's there's. Okay, so so I think there's a very there's a very obvious mistake that people can make, but there's but there's also more subtle issues in the background. Um, so the obvious mistake I think is to move from socially constructed to doesn't exist. So in other words, to treat if something is socially constructed, to treat it as though it is as the same status as something that happens in a fiction. So the thought will be that if if, if a particular institution or entity is socially constructed, you would treat it as being for all intents and purposes, like Hogwarts or Harry Potter. And I think that's a mistake. And, but, but things are a little bit more complicated. For, for, so so one, one question, of course, is that, well, what do we mean when we talk about social construction? And I think we can give some pretty clear examples. Um, so money is, the, is the kind of the typical example, or, or the university is, is an institution which is socially constructed. And it exists only insofar as, in a sense, people decided that it would exist and people think that it exists. And in that case, therefore, it's different to, um, for example, um, a galaxy or, or a water molecule for that matter. Uh -huh. But things do get complicated because you do sometimes see a slippage between talking about certain, um, certain things being socially constructed and our theories about certain things being socially constructed. So somebody might say, I don't know, um, you know, could, could you talk about the, the social construction of chemistry, let's say? And I think you can, provided you make it clear that what you're talking about is the social construction of a body of theory and a set of practices and a set of institutions mm -hmm. that people, in, that, people um, uh, that together constitute um, the, the, the science of chemistry, as it were. But that's quite a different mm -hmm. thing to talking about the, the um, facts the chemical, you know, the, the 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 chemical facts in the world, which that activity is is geared at um, at uncovering, and it's much more contentious to say that those facts are socially socially constructed. I mean, it's not. I'm not saying it's completely impossible, but I'm saying you you know, it's, it's clearly a different kind of claim, and I think it's a much harder mm -hmm. claim. So I think that is important because then you get into really tricky things like, well, is truth socially constructed? Is knowledge socially constructed? And I think even here we have to make we have to make similar kinds of distinction. Um, so take truth, for example. And so there's a lot of different, you know, on the one hand, you have metaphysical theories of truth. But on the other hand, when people talk about mm -hmm. truth in a non-philosophical setting, very often they're not concerned with those metaphysical theories. They're not concerned, in other words, with the question of the nature of truth, you know, where, where nature has a capital N and truth has a capital T. What they're concerned with is something more like which claims are true and which claims are false. And very often they'll also be concerned with, do we have a reliable way for telling between them? So mm -hmm. I'm just, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm generalizing here now based on, based on my own limited experience, but um, very often that's 
those are the kind of questions people are more interested in when they're talking about truth. And there it's, again, you can talk about, I, I'm, I, will be, I think it's a bit misleading to say truth itself is, is socially constructed, um, partly because it's not entirely clear to me what, what is meant by that claim. But I think what you could say is something like, well, truth claims, as in somebody um, claiming that something is true, or a particular um, practice being based on the assumption that something is, tr is true, or an institution like a scientific laboratory generating results um, which are presented as true, those involve social activities, practices, institutions. So there's an element of construction there at that side. But I, I would mm -hmm. want um, to, to, to distinguish that from the claim that the actual truth or falsity of the propositions or the sentences themselves is socially constructed. So what I'm thinking of here is that if there's a laboratory somewhere that discover, so I mean, you know, take, take the, take the, um, the coronavirus. Um, so there's been an enormous amount of study done, done on this virus. There's an enormous, enormous number of claims have been made and those claims are made in specific social contexts with very often with specific ends in mind. But, and all of that can be, can be um, studied from the point of view of, of, of being socially constructed and, and um, you know, mediation of different um, things like power relations, for example, and maybe things like cultural contexts will come into play there. Um, but I want to distinguish that and statements about the virus, which are just true. Um, so for example, it is a virus. Mm -hmm. It is not a bacterium. It is not a, a tiny insect. Um, and the thought there is that the truth of the statement, it is a virus, is not in an important sense. It's not, it's not itself socially constructed. So not only was the virus not manufactured in a Chinese lab, nor was it socially constructed um, in, you know, I don't know, a, a gender studies department or something, whatever it is that people socially construct okay. nowadays. Um, so that would be the way that I would go. So that, that's not a quick and easy answer, but um, I do think that, as I said, there's, there's, a, there's a mistake, there's a very obvious mistake which people do make, but then there's a more subtle um, kind of moving from talking about the social construction of certain activities, processes and institutions on the one hand, and maybe the construction of um, other things, for example, truth or knowledge. And it's just that you just have to be careful, I think, in making those moves. Um, to distinguish between yeah. are we talking about certain social practices where you definitely can bring um, um, thoughts of social construction to bear or are you talking about uh, for example the truth value of a sentence like um, this thing is a virus where it's not it's just not so clear to me at all that, that in what sense that would yeah. be socially constructed Okay, I think that's a good distinction to make. So we're just about out of time. So I'm going to give you one last question. I've saved the most important one for last, and then we'll get you to uh, enlightening round. Um, why are they called metaphysicians instead of metaphysicists? <laughs> yeah, I saw this question on Twitter and I, I laughed. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, so doctors are referred to as physicians, aren't they? Um, you know, hence mm -hmm. the physician yes, heal thyself. And physicists are referred to as physicists, and I don't know. Maybe, maybe they were scared again, once again, of competing with the with the physicists. Um, as I don't. To the doctors? I, oh, yeah, no, no, doctors are much easier to compete with. Um, I I don't know. I, I suspect it was. 
I, well, I did notice that you introduced introduced me at the start of the program as Dr. Donegal Connell, and of course that's that's a controversial um, um, title these days. Um, if I'm not if I'm not actually in a, a white coat right. with a stethoscope. I, yeah, I, no. yeah, I don't know, um, is the short answer. Um, just as I don't uh-huh, know if, there's, if, if anyone really knows why um, the, the, the discipline of metaphysics got its name. You know, so there's, there's this story mm-hmm. that's often told about, about Aristotle's books being assembled by an editor long after Aristotle's mm-hmm. death. And a collection of those books was put together and they, they make up what we now call the book uh, Metaphysics. And it was given that title because it was um, something like um, the one after the physics. Namely, and, the, mm-hmm. and that's been interpreted as the, the thought there as being that students should read these books after they have read Aristotle's uh, work on, on physics. And as I said, I don't know if that's actually um, um, accepted as true, although it's a very widely um, um, spread story. And nor, I'm afraid, do I know the answer to why we're called, I say we, but uh, why metaphysicians are called metaphysicians. Has, uh, if nobody has taken the title Metaphysician Heal Thyself for a paper, I feel like someone should call dibs on that real fast because I think that's... Yeah, I, I'm, really I, 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 they surely have. Um, surely, surely. But mm-hmm. one other thing I'll say about the, the word metaphysics, which is really interesting, and I think there was another um, question about this in the Twitter exchange. It's New Age thinkers and gurus um, love this. Um, mm-hmm. So I was, I was looking around the other day for... Um, I was just l- looking online and, and, and I saw a list of, um, it was something like 25 top metaphysics podcasts. And I was like, wow, that's, that's, at least, that's at least one more metaphysics podcast than I would have expected. But when I went through the list, every single one of them was, was um, spiritualism and new age. And so mm-hmm. that's interesting because in some circles, the term metaphysics is pejorative. So when people call string theory metaphysics, mm-hmm. very often they mean it as an insult. It's, it's not even right. science. It's not even bad science. It falls beneath uh, the level of bad science. It is mere metaphysics. But on the other, in, in other cultural circles, like um, the New Age circle, calling something metaphysics or associating yourself with metaphysics seems to be a very positive thing. It seems to, maybe it connotes a kind of a, maybe they're going for this idea that it's beyond physics in some way. It's beyond the merely scientific. Yeah, I think they're using it because it, allows them to do that non-overlapping magisteria thing again where they can say look we're not doing physics we're not in competition with science we're a separate thing that is metaphysics or something like that but yeah it is funny that that metaphysics is a kind of slur in a lot of places um and it's and i think i think it is exacerbated by the fact that folks who are engaged in various kinds of woo will often take up metaphysics the same way they'll take up quantum physics and thereby kind of make a hash of both of them Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so I hope that anybody who's who's going to be tuning into this podcast to um, from a, you know hoping for a new age enlightenment won't have been too disappointed by my discussions. Of, um, <laughs> this has been the opposite of that. Yes. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty funny. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun, but unfortunately, now I have to torture you. Oh, so, uh, yeah. And the weird, the fun thing is. You are, I believe, the first individual who to come back on the show after having survived the first enlightening round. Um, and you probably didn't survive, realize that there was an enlightening round level two, Trolley Boogaloo. It's just a simulation. I would never make you kill real people. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm going to give you a list of scenarios and you are going to tell me what you should do 
in those scenarios. Okay, this is not a what what you would do. This is a what you should do. Okay. Okay. You You're a bad man. Are you ready? I know I'm a terrible, terrible person. Here we go. So, would you pull the lever, as it were, trolley man, to save five people by killing one person? I think you. Should you? I think you should not. Should not. Okay. Should not. Should you save one million people by killing one person? Ah, I knew this was coming. You're a very bad man. Um, look, I'm going to stick to my guns and say you should not. You should not. Okay. You should not. Should you, should you uh, save five people by killing yourself? In certain circumstances, yes. So let's, let's call that one a should. Should. Okay. Uh, should you save yourself by killing one person? I'm going to say no, but I want to put a pin in that one because I want to come back to that one. But I'm going to say, I'm going to say no. The, the, you know how this game works. Pins go unnoticed. Um, would you? So, so I guess you'd also say no to save yourself by killing one million people. I mean, yeah, that, that, obviously that's a more attractive proposition in some ways, but uh, no, again. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about saving the five people by pushing a person onto the tracks? Oh, still no. Still a no. Yeah. Okay. What about saving one million by pushing a person onto the track? Still no? Still no. Okay. Would it make any difference, I guess not in your case, to save five by, instead of uh, pushing the person yourself, pulling a lever that releases a mechanism that pushes the person onto the tracks? I I don't think that would make much difference, no. At least not, not much no difference, difference okay. to what should happen. One final, should this make a difference, what if the person being pushed was responsible for putting the five people on the tracks. Oh, that is good. I like that one. I'm still going to say no. Okay. Which is um, pretty hardcore of me, I think. Um, or, you know, okay. deluded, possibly. <laughs> Do you think you should kill five people to save a loved one? No. Although you did say kill there as opposed okay. to let die, so that which, which I do, I do think, actually think is a relevant difference. Okay, would you let die to save a loved one? Let five die to save a loved one? I still want to say no, but, I, but I, I do think that actually is harder. I genuinely think that's a harder one. Okay. And I imagine similarly for kill, uh, killing or letting die of one million to save a loved one? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, a few other ones here. Saving your favorite artist by destroying their complete body of work. Yeah, I, I would I would go with that. I would say you should. You should? Okay. Yeah. Saving a 10-year-old by killing an 80-year-old. I'm going to go with no on that one. You should okay. not. Okay. Saving a world historic person by killing a non-world historic person. Again, no for me. Okay. And finally, saving a random stranger human versus your very favorite non-human animal. Oh, that, that one's really nice because I think we spoke about this the last time that I'm, I'm a vegetarian for ethical reasons. But mm -hmm. I, am, I am inclined to say that you should save the human. But, but I will admit that it's very, very hard for me to give a principled account of why that is the case. And I think that's definitely a kind of a weak spot in my, in my ethical thinking. Okay, fair enough. You have survived the first round of Enlightening Round 2, Trolley Boogaloo. How do you feel? And be honest, for this is for posterity. 
I feel spent. <laughs> Vacant. A void. I feel like there's a, the void has entered my soul. Good. Well, I appreciate the test drive. This is helping me fine-tune the torture a little bit. So um, I will look forward to, to comments from listeners about how I might tweak this to make it even more horrible for future return guests. You should, I, th I think one, one interesting thing there is that you should definitely... Um, I think what you, I predict what you'll find is that people will fall into interesting camps. So my mm -hmm. camp is very much kind of, I suppose, rule-based, that there are certain things we should never do. And then, of course, you're putting pressure on them in various ways. You're putting pressure on that rule in various ways. And it'll be interesting to see whether there are other people who take a much more consequentialist, for example, approach. And so mm -hmm. that's as, as, the, as, the, um, as, you, as you test drive it on various people, it'll be interesting to see how how different people fare in that respect. You'll find a, quite a bit of grouping on one side as opposed to the other side. Mm -hmm. I also go back and forth about whether I should be asking should or would. Um, I feel like would turns into a like psychology kind of, you know, what would my brain do under pressure kind of question for a lot yeah. of people, whereas the should keeps it in the normative realm, but might not necessarily have quite as mixed or, or, or challenged answers, I wonder. I think I think I think should is better. I think it's. I mean, I, I and I agree with you that um, would does seem like more. You're you're making some sort of prediction concerning concerning a hypothetical case, and that is a different. That is literally a different question. I mean, so I quite possibly mm -hmm. would save the life of a loved one in those scenarios. Um, right. And I, you know, I think I think I think it would be very misleading of me to insist that I certainly would not. But at the same time, mm -hmm. I am inclined to say that you should. Um, not do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. All right, Donica, this has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on and talking a bunch of metaphysics and then a little bit of ethics there at the end. Um, do you want to let folks know where they can find you on the interwebs? Right. So I um, have a minimal and austere social media presence, um, but I do have a website, um, donicaoconnell.com, which I hope you will provide a link to because that'll save me mm -hmm, having to spell out the name and um which would um quite possibly break the internet to hear my my, my uh, all those all those many many letters and so yeah johnnycoconnell.com lovecraft story i'll give you that <laughs> uh there are worse i think i think uh, sri lankan names are are um, super elaborate and complicated and um mm -hmm. so yeah there are, there are worse than irish names but but it is it is a very very irish name uh so yeah that website has um basically um my whole life is there. So, so, so go and um, gorge yourselves if you feel the need. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks very much again, Aaron. Take care. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our top tier patrons to our Archon level patrons. Thank you very much, dude. Fix the vote. I want to be the tempeh in a Foucault and Camus sandwich, Chad T, Jesse Rabinowitz, and Brenda Goodman. And to our Archduke patrons, thank you so much. Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and the ever-great Dave Maslich. Thank you all so very much. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month 
gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group, which has just started up again. Most of all, no matter how things feel right now, remember, you are the void, and the void is you. Mm-hmm.